I will start recording on all my various things. Hi everyone and welcome to the Creative Coding Podcast, episode 37. Wow. Uh, with me, Sebley Delisle digital artist living in Brighton and me Ian Lobb a game developer living in Cornwall and and today we have a very special guest uh, Jared Ficklin uh, from Texas Jared is well a man of many talents uh, I think he was known for being in a reality tv show in America what was it the ranch house Texas ranch house yeah, yeah the ranch house but also a little known lover of dancing yes not amongst those around me. They know I love to dance. <laughs> um, and uh, But works at, at Frog Design, uh, does a lot of work with physical computing. Welcome, Jared. We're really pleased to have you here. Thank you for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, anyone who's ever seen you at a conference uh, knows that you like to play with fire. It is one of my hobbies. I'm not a pyromaniac, though. I, fire to me is a tool for sound visualization, and uh, that's where I do a lot of my fire playing. Nice rationalization there. That's good, yeah. <laughs> not burned anything down since the eighth grade. It's, it's just a tool. Um, but no, you should definitely check out Jared's uh, YouTube videos. We were hoping you might set fire to something today. Got anything handy? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. No, they frisk me at the door to the office. They say, you keep that as your hobby. Don't bring the fire into the office place anymore. Yeah, you haven't just burnt the, the office down. No, not completely. And now but, there's procedures in place. <laughs> that sign behind you looks pretty flammable. I'm sure it is, but I have no instruments at which, with which to set fire. But we could improvise. I do have electricity nearby. I think I have a knife in my pocket, so maybe we could start with electricity. Yeah, it sounds, yeah, sure, let's do it. Let's, and uh, let's do it. The sh shortest podcast you've had yet was <laughs> a demonstration of fire starting in downtown Austin. But I say, I say go to the YouTube channel. That, that fire is a lot more organized anyhow, and it, and it behaves in very interesting ways. Yeah, so um, I guess we could just explain some of those videos. The first one I saw was the Rubens Tube. Yeah, we, we might as we kind of have to now. We've you have to explain everyone. it, don't you? Yeah, it's a classic physics experiment. Uh, uh, the apparatus, as they call them, uh, was uh, originated by Heinrich Rubens, who's a German physicist and a contemporary of, of, of uh, um Einstein, and they were debating heavily about with sound, you know, waves or particles, and he created this thing where you fill it with gas, propane gas, which is uh, heavier than air, and you drill holes along the top of it at even intervals, and then you set it on fire, and then on one end you put a speaker and you play sound through it, and it influences the combustion properties of the propane. Uh, I learned on Mythbusters that that's called stoichiometry. Stoichiometry? And, uh, correct is the combustion properties of a flammable gas. So propane likes to burn very specifically at an 80-20 mixture. Uh, it doesn't like to burn with more or less oxygen. So if you change the density of air, it can change the vigor with which a flame combusts. So you can control the height of the uh, flame in this manner. The sound is actually changing the compression of the air above the tube. 
and thus influence it. So if you set up a standing wave, which is our you know, classic sine curve of the same length of your tube, you will see the sine curve emerge in fire. And if you play music, you will see the waveforms emerge in fire. So that's like, because the, the sound is in pressure waves, right? So if you can figure out how, how wide that wave is in like physical space, then you can make it a, like uh, match the, le- the length of the tube, right? Correct. And that's why you get those cool little wave pans. Yeah, so if you're good at math, you should be able to figure out what frequency to use in advance. And if you're bad at math, you just you use just a tone generator and slide it around until it resonates. Um, and the resonation is that it doubles back on itself. So it, it really creates a powerful, uh, a more powerful force. And that force is enough to gather the molecules together. But just playing regular music will do this as too. You'll see it react, but the waveform is so complex that it's harder to pick out than just the sine curve. It's really fun to do. It's a simple experiment, and uh, uh, and it's a classic. And it helped prove out the mathematics that allowed us to describe uh, sound waves as these different intervals of compression and rarefaction. You say it's a simple experiment itself. I mean, it seemed like quite a lot of stuff you have in your garage and there at home. Uh, I saw a TED talk once about a 17-year-old who built a thermonuclear reactor in his shed. This is much simpler than that. All right, yeah, much fair simpler. point. <laughs> fair point. And so what do you do at Frog Design? You've been there quite a few years now, haven't you? 13 years. I'm a frog fellow, and so I'm now responsible... You know, I've been here a long time and gathered up a lot of interesting knowledge. I tell people now that my job is to find innovative technologies and connect them with humans who are seeking experiences from that technology. Uh, they don't always know what experiences they're they're seeking. And so the, what that means in terms of practices, I run a couple of practices that deal with user experience simulation and also kind of a synthesis activity, what I call technology-driven brainstorming. And we call those frog sim and frog shed. And so one's for generating concepts and one's for solving kind of interaction model problems, all, all oriented to in pairing technology with the user. So it all sounds like it's a pretty heavy R&D role, right? Uh, yeah, in a way. Less traditional in that we're not always going for intellectual property so much as, as focused on the experience and intellectual property will come out of it. So it has less in, in, in to do with, it has a lot more to do with design with technology than it does just engineering or like looking for capabilities. And, and so you get to play with all the new toys. I get to play with a lot of new toys. I, I do say I live five years in the future, <laughs> and, but it's all under NDA, so I can't tell you about it. <laughs> it also say- makes it very hard to shop for phones or consumer electronics because everything is frustratingly, you know, lagging behind what you see. Yeah, but to be fair, you did have trouble with your iPhone stay, right? <laughs> <laughs> is that because it's, you're too far ahead of it? Is that, is that it's the because problem? I, my expectations are that I would tell it to do these things and it would respond by doing them. But that's not true. You still have to fiddle around with them and find settings. Ian, you seem a little quiet today. Are you doing all right over there? I'm good, yeah. It's such a sunny afternoon here in Cornwall. I don't know what it's like there. It's but quite sunny here. It's really nice here, man. Jared, you have to understand we're English. We have to talk about the weather uh, for a little while um, before we can talk about anything else. Is that okay? That's fine. We, the, in Texas, you, when you... I had a question for Jared, actually, about sort of his various apparatus. Like, you build all of those yourself. Yes. Now, yes. what's your sort of background in, like, making physical stuff versus making software things? 
Um, I love to play in the physical, and I'm a hobbyist there, I would say. <laughs> so, I, I, And I'm adventurous, I would say, as well. So I, no, I'm one of those kids that grew up working on the car with his dad or switching out RAM uh, cards in our Atari ST 1040. So he never he instilled in us the courage to take things apart uh, and didn't, never punished us too badly when we couldn't get them back together. And, <laughs> I still behave that way as an adult. Uh, to build some of like the fire apparatus, I had to teach myself how to weld. I, I like to take up, like, I didn't want to, you don't want to go buy an expensive speaker and then put it next to fire. <laughs> so <laughs> that's going to cost you a lot. So I would go to Goodwill and buy things for a dollar or $2 and take them apart and use those bits and pieces. I even did that in Brighton once. When my when I during rehearsal fried an entire amplifier, and I, I went to what is a pawn, I guess a pawn shop and bought a whole stereo from there and took it apart, did my session, put it back together, and went back and sold it to him for <laughs> half of what I paid for it. <laughs> All in a twelve-hour period. I, I viewed it as a very cheap rental. That's pretty good, isn't it? See. What we do is we just buy stuff from Argos and then uh, you get 14 day no questions asked returns <laughs> policy. So uh, it's like free rental from Argos. I didn't I didn't say that. I never I've never done that. That would obviously be wrong. I should have asked more questions about where to shop. Sometimes I buy stuff from Argos and I just don't like it very much. Take it back again. That's... You have to have great patience for unboxing to do that. Or do they just not care about packaging? Like we do. I, I, you know, I haven't done that for years. Uh, Backpedal. <laughs> when I was uh, a poor musician, we, we'd borrow the occasional uh, expensive video camera from Argos. <laughs> yeah. Well, so no shyness about making, but also I believe philosophically uh, the maker movement is real. Uh, I think a lot of kids growing up today have no problem with this and plus they have tools to do even more and also i think it's having a profound impact on the design trade so if you're going to be a really good designer product designer you you should be making you should not have this fear to construct try and your to construct or deconstruct your own things it seems to be a lot of um you know sort of interest in that kind of thing right are you part of the big sort of make community i'm i'm uh, uh, i'm probably a lurker in the community uh i have um been to Maker Fairs. Um, I, I got I got, I, I got to present at Maker Fair, uh, World Maker Fair in New York last year, which is an eye-opening experience because I'd never been to that Maker Fair before, and it, it, it's really fantastic. Uh, my subscription to Make Magazine, but uh, after that, it's all in my garage. I, I'm a man cave operator. <laughs> I guess that's a combination of just having a good collection of tools, so not needing a warehouse to go and um, uh, um, not being very clean and they would thus probably kick me out of their spaces. I guess you've probably got a lot of space as well. Like in Brighton, I don't, uh, there's no space really. Yeah. I, I'm part of that, the local hack space and I'm really thankful for it. I will make you jealous in that I have a two car garage that most of which is dedicated to shop working. Uh, uh, we don't park our cars in there. <laughs> and then cars? I have also, but yeah, yeah, I've, 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 I, we have three cars. 
Three. Well, two that are, are, are transportation and one that's my new little hobby, and that's a 1969 Datsun 510 wagon, um, which I recently have begun endeavoring upon an Arduino build to make the mechanical speedometer work with the digital speed sensor of the motor that's been swapped out for a newer motor. Interesting. Using modular microcircuitry. If you do something like that in a car, like, do you have to prove that it works? Like to be legal or... That's the whole reason I'm doing it because right now I can't pass inspection because this pedometer will not move. But I'm guessing the guy who does inspection, he's not going to pull out the speed gun. So I'm thinking if I get it to move pretty close to like speed up, slow down, then I'll pass inspection because <laughs> I can get the speed off the tachometer no problem. I, I know the gearing and I know that third gear, 2,500 RPM, that's 35 miles an hour. That, that's easy to do. But to meet the bureaucracy, I've, I'm going to take on this little fun build um, where I just take the, uh, the, in the transmission, there's a gear that spins a little basically motor. So it produces a sign signal uh, uh, of around two volts oscillating positive negative. Um, so you read that and then uh, uh, do a little bit of math and spin a motor at the right RPM. That turns a cable that goes into the back of the speedometer where they have a magnet that rolls around. That magnet catches the speedometer needle on every interval and the spring wants to pull it back, the magnet wants to pull it forward, so it settles based on how fast it's moving. The faster it's moving, the further the needle goes. So I'm gonna get that motor to spin, spin the cable, move the needle, and hopefully if I do all my math right, it should show me what the speed is. But it, this is a 60 car from the 60s, so if the needle's expected to do this. Yeah. <laughs> so I'll get within a 10 or 20 mile an hour accuracy. Got a bit of wiggle room there, haven't you? So it'll be fine. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Speed. The speed is not important. That you just you want you go fast. That's mm. the point. So, so you were telling me before we went on air, you've done a, a couple of TED talks recently. I've totally missed them. You know, I'm terrible. I remember we met in New York, and you'd just done an audition for TED, right? That, so, that's right. So presumably that went well. <laughs> <laughs> It did go well. I didn't think so at the time. I thought for sure. Uh, so it was two years ago, and they decided to hold auditions for the first time. And uh, I made a little video. I've done this a couple times in my life. And one time I ended up in a ranch in 1867, and the next time I ended up in the TED audition. So I don't know where this video is going to lead me. But um, uh, Reggie Watts was there and about 14 other people. And when it was all done, I was was pretty firm at the time that I met you for breakfast that Reggie Watts was going to TED and the rest of us were screwed because he's an amazing uh, comedian and, and artist. Yeah, he does like the sound stuff, doesn't he? He makes uh, music and stuff like multi-tracks himself and, and he has big hair. That's Is he, is he English? Uh, no, he's, I think he's a New Yorker. Okay. Oh, I think I, I think I know this guy. Has he got, um, does he do a song where he like pretends to sing in other languages, but he's just sort of making it up? Yes. Yeah. And there's a lot of like surrealism <laughs> in his performance. It's very funny. I like that dude. He's cool. He does a great like science voice to uh, voice from the hood uh, thing too. That's awesome. That's in his TED talk actually, where he does this. The reality of reality is not the no brothers to come out and begin to speak. It's really great. Obviously, not great when I do. <laughs> but uh, they invited me back, and they wanted to hear about sound visualization. So I did a TED Talk in Long Beach, and it is on TED.com. And um, I love reading the comments and seeing what people have to 
do about it. It's uh, interesting. It's a, it's really a talk that, uh, Seb, you and I began speaking at the same time at the same conference, correct? I think so. Right. I think it was, um, it was flash forward Austin, 06? 96. The year after I was on our... 06. Oh, yeah, 2006. Not 96. We're not that old. I, I, was, I wasn't born then. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're a young one. <laughs> Yeah, right. Uh, well, <laughs> the age of 10, you were presenting at, at yeah, Flash Forward Austin. It's funny, actually, because Aral just found his, because um, Aral was at that conference as well, and he just found his, like, in those days, it's it's kind of mind-boggling that it was only, like, what, six, seven years ago? Um, but all of those conferences, they used to ask for all the speaker notes up front, usually just be your slides and they print them all out into a book so like you turn up at the conference and you get this thick ring bound book like this big uh with everyone's talks in you know and i mean that wasn't that long ago isn't that weird like we don't do that at all anymore do we just stick it on the internet we would we don't even do that in the apps but man did you just jog my memory i'd completely forgotten about that yeah well aral found his book and um and he had the schedule in there. I bet I had the crappiest notes. Seb, the first time I think that I ever saw you or knew anything of you was at the first Flash on the Beach. Oh, yeah. And you gave a talk where you handed out CD-ROMs with source code on them. <laughs> I did. <laughs> because, like, Wi-Fi basically didn't exist. And you just handed out these discs so you could sort of code along. So people could code along it's with what I was doing. That's insane, isn't it? That's mental. How quickly we forget. I still have, like, the last thing of CD-ROMs and DVD-ROMs that I bought, and I have I think I've not touched it in about five years. It's mad. Well, none of my new computers even have CD drives, right? So... <laughs> This is a this is what I currently speak about. Actually, is this uh, movement on the exponential technology curve? I've left sound visualization behind after Ted and talk about these castoffs of the exponential technology curve and how the, how the rapid pace of technology is changing the patterns of computing, moving us quickly towards the future, whether we like it or not. Yeah. Well, anyway, I asked Doral to save the book. He was going to recycle it, so I'll save it. If you want me to rip out your page and scan <laughs> it, in, I'll, I'll send it over. I can only imagine it's one page of last-minute submitted, poorly written notes. I'll never forget that, though. I have to say, I was—I really loved that talk because you had a second projector, right? Yes. You set up a second projector, and you projected like little like characters and stuff, and you just programmed it so the character's mouth opened whenever you spoke. So it's sort of like your avatar, and you change yeah. it. But there was no like clever sound recognition or anything, was it? It was just like literally volume doing right. that. Yeah. But it was so yeah, effective. <laughs> it's the, well, yeah, because it's not the technology's capability, it's the experience it has to offer that's important. And that's the same, because you're right, that was the dumbest hack in the world um, where they had just introduced mic activity as a zero to 100 value in like flash five or something. <laughs> and all I did was have coworkers draw and, and my girlfriend at the time draw me characters. I did a very poor mouth animation loop on each one that was a hundred frames long and just had a go to and stop at mic <laughs> activity. That was the whole bit. That took so much processing horsepower that I brought a second machine and then <laughs> at the conference, 
they were giving me a little grief about hooking up or doing split screen or all this kind of stuff. And so I just brought my own projector and found a place in the room and just projected it on the wall and said, this is my presentation. Uh, that kind of, I guess, I started the bringing too much equipment to <laughs> conferences as well. <laughs> And, and now, of course, you just bring, like, dustbins and, and smoke machines and all kinds of crap to the conferences, oh, yeah. right? Currently, I have a box full of uh, uh, relays and lamps and yeah. connects and models that I bring and bring. Where do you get your ideas for, like, you know, old experiments you can bring back from physics classes or whatever? Where, like, where, where do you sort of do your research and get your inspiration? It's a very good question. Um, they come from my past, and they come from Boy Scouting. I was a Boy Scout, and in Las Cruces, our scout troop was very small, and it's the desert, so camping is not that incredibly fun. Um, there's no trees. There's no water. <laughs> it's very hot. You just basically just go out and stay on rocks. So we would go hiking. But uh, so we had these scoutmasters who were predominantly from the university. And one of them was the dean of physics for New Mexico State University. His name was Harold Daw. And rather than go camping in the desert, Harold Daw would prefer for us to do all these classic uh, build and do all these classic physics experiments. So he's the one that set me on the course. He also uh, had a role in inventing the air hockey table and he is the one who uh, uh, first published the apparatus the flame table which is the two-dimensional Rubens tube that I also have videos on that's where they originated so I'm really just bringing back all the experiments that he would have us do for fun to keep us occupied since we couldn't camp that's amazing pretty cool so um you were gonna I think you were telling me earlier about your new project something to do with transport oh yeah the wire okay so you're going to have to explain it. I've got literally no idea what it is. I don't like free time. That's number one. So uh, <laughs> at least I must not like free time because if I have too much of it, I go on an activist bent. And I used to build skate parks and they all got built and now they build themselves. So I don't have to do that very much anymore. And I by build that, them, yeah. I mean, yeah, I mean lobbying the city to build them. I don't mean literally mm. building them myself, although I've had some fun in the design process. Mm. So then I've moved on to transportation. Austin's a growing city. We have a really big transportation problem. And um, I used to work in the ski industry. And uh, they have these things in the ski industry called high-speed detachable gondolas. Uh, they ride on a cable and they go pretty fast. The ski industry can make them go 20 miles per hour, but usually 12 to 15 miles per hour is what they go. They drop off the cable, mechanically release, and go onto a track system because you wouldn't want to get off a gondola going 15 miles an hour. And when I say gondola, I mean like a big fiberglass four-person car oh, or see. a six-person car with bench seats built so in. It's like a cable car, right? It's a cable car. It's up on a cable, yeah. up on towers. And um, a fascinating thing happened at that time is the city of Telluride, and this was like in the mid-90s, they replaced their bus system. They woke up one day and said, oh, yeah, why are we Why are we have buses and bus drivers? They just made a seven-mile line go over flat ground instead of up the mountain. And instead of people getting on buses, they would get on these gondolas. Now, they move continuously. Like, cars come in the station every two seconds. And you can line up, like, ten of them and load parallel, like, 40 people at once continuously. Uh, so they have a huge capacity. So I used to go on this rant in Austin about how we should have these gondolas. We should have these uh, uh, gondolas in Austin as a transportation in the center of the city. And I ranted to a coworker, Michael McDaniel, who then uh, 
thought it was curious, looked into it. He took eight of our frog designers and worked them in secret for three months on a gorilla design project doing design research and a whole study. And he came back with the wire. The wire is our concept for urban cable transport, a central circulator for Austin, Texas. And it works really well in an older central city because one of its attributes is it's up in the air. And older cities have very little eminent domain. There are streets, like in Austin, the streets in the center of the city were laid out to the scale of horse and buggy in the 1850s. And so there's not room for trains in them, and there's not really room for that many cars anymore. And so uh, these, though, can go above the streets and over the sidewalks. They can go over buildings. They can go over rivers at no cost, so that you can fit them in as a central circulator in the eminent domain of the city. And uh, so in Austin, we would have to name it something weird. Gondola doesn't work because no one skis here, and they all think we're not going to take, we're going to flood the streets and take boats, is what <laughs> they all think. So we're going to call, yeah, so we're going to call it the wire. Um, and then you can say, I'm going to go get on the wire, or I'm going to ride wire one or wire two. And this actually arrived at a whole plan, and there, we, it was the subject of a TEDx Austin talk, which you can find on YouTube by searching The Wire or searching Jared Ficklin or searching TEDx Austin. And uh, you can watch it and see more what this actually is. Uh, it's actually gotten quite a bit of visibility, and I've recently been in front of a bunch of like county transportation working groups and authorities and working to a meeting with the mayor and, and a bunch of uh, 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 state representatives on April 22nd to try and see if we can't get this installed in Austin as a transportation option. So we would uh, walk up. One of the cool things about it is it borrows some things from automobiles. Now here in the U.S., people, especially in the Western U.S., when we did our design research, people have a very different view of public transport than they do in England or Europe or the rest of the world. And one of the things they think is, first of all, they will not operate on a schedule. They, they hate scheduling and they perceive mass transit to run on a schedule. And one of the reasons they stay in their cars despite traffic is they can walk out the door and get in at any time and they perceive this to happen without planning. A second thing that they don't like is we have a much greater need for personal space, even more so than the East Coast of the United States. <laughs> and so they view public transportation, buses or trains is crowded and that doesn't jive with them. They want space for themselves. So this thing, the wire, is basically like a subway divided up into a bunch of four or six person cars. And this creates a couple things. Since it runs con continuously, there is no schedule. You just walk up and walk on. Yeah. And so you don't have to worry about scheduling. So the I guess second they've got thing, these little tracks, don't they? So that they can sort of wait and not be attached to the moving bit of cable. They can be there ready for you to hop in. I guess I didn't finish that. Yeah, they actually drop off the cable, they slow way down, they stack up and queue together, and then you put them back on the cable they take how, off. How on earth did you get involved in, in this? I mean, aren't you a programmer? <laughs> so um, Now you're just getting involved in, like, civic amenities. <laughs> You have, you know, my program. Yeah. So I guess once you've been doing the same thing for 13 years, um, you know, you become, uh, you know, they, I guess they call me an SME uh, on certain things. So an SME? you have to subject matter expert, they say. <laughs> and so. Uh, See, in England, that small media enterprise is terrible. <laughs> They're both kind of terrible. Isn't it a small to medium enterprise, Seb? Oh, yeah, it might be. Yeah, yeah, no, that, that you could be right there. Jared, I love this idea. It reminds me of, um, like, the tubes in Futurama. There are, like, these pipes yeah. that take everyone around, and obviously they can go up and down and into weird spaces. 
It's the new version of the monorail. Yeah, <laughs> uh, it, it is a, a yeah. It's a cheaper version of a monorail. It probably costs a quarter to construct as a monorail, and it costs so, probably a quarter construct as as surface rail. I like. Is it. there a precedent for anyone sort of doing this already anywhere else? There is actually <clears throat> in a surprising location, and uh, we see this in a lot of our work that the third world is able to jump infrastructure gaps and even technology gaps faster than the first world. And Medellin, Colombia has installed a, a, a system and it's already expanded to three lines with a fourth in the works. And it's integrated with their metro rail and their busing. Uh, the reason being is that they have all these older neighborhoods that uh, may have even started out as, as favelas or, or, or slums. And they're now getting more affluent, but they have streets so narrow they can't even run buses in them. And they were wondering, how do we get transportation to these people? And this was the solution, because it, it can go ride right above their houses, come down to a stop, go back in the, above, and they don't have to tear out a whole strip of houses in order to put this in. Uh, and so it's been very successful there. So the, 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 there's been guinea pigs, and there's about 12 or 13 other locations. There's a form of this in London. Oh, it's um, the cable car across the river, isn't it? <clears throat> Yeah, that's technically a tram. Oh, is it? It's not what I'm referring to as a, as a, a, a detachable gondola because it's one like bus that holds like 200 people and goes across. It is cable driven. That works very well from point to point. Uh, um, whereas this works very well as a circulator line. If we put one of those in Austin, we would learn that there's no public transport on either end of it very quickly. And um, <laughs> it wouldn't do anything. How is how and is what, how is like cycling culture in in Austin? Well, you've heard of Lance Armstrong, I assume. Sure, <laughs> but from a day-to-day -day point of view, I mean, like, do, do you have a lot of cyclists and things like that? I'm not really. Yeah, it's. It's huge. Lance Armstrong is from Austin. I brought him up because he's a product of the whole cycling culture here, and it's huge. It's huge. It's as big as Portland, and it's very aggressive, and there's a lot of commuter cycling that happens, and uh, you can take a bike right onto one of these things. Because, like, uh, I mean, isn't the solution really awesome. for all public transport things just more cycling, though? Just better cycle lanes, and then... Um, I, so, uh, Lance Armstrong is known for how good he is at riding in the, in the mountains, and uh, he cut his legs here in Austin. You have to be a fairly, to be a, a commuter cyclist in Austin, you have to be pretty hardcore. I'm a fair weather cycler myself, but I don't think it's a solution in Austin because our geography is a little too severe. We, we've got to wrap up soon, but I just wondered, um, is it, how likely is your new transport system to be built? I give it about a 2% chance. <laughs> <laughs> We're trying to make it uncomfortably visible right now and just educate the powers to be as an option. But there's a lot of momentum around the, the known first world solutions of surface train and such. And yeah. uh, this is an additive process and, and we're just hoping to shift opinions and, and get, you know, Austin as a city, it's an innovation city and it's a technology city. So I think if we get it familiar enough, it has a chance, but yeah. um, we might be a little late to the planning and that, that might exclude it right there. I could carry on talking about this stuff for ages, Jared, but we kind of run out of time, I'm afraid, but so maybe we'll get you back on. Sure, sure, sure. It said, I think you know that I have no problem talking. <laughs> I don't think any of us have a problem talking. <laughs> so I would like everyone to go to YouTube, watch the Texas Ranch House, and come back, and let's have a little discussion on it. It's a very oh, interesting piece yeah, of television. Yeah, you should definitely watch the Texas Ranch House. And I know it's British television, some. by the way. It was done by Wall to Wall, which is a London-based production company.
I guess it came out of like we had a couple of shows like the Victorian House, didn't we? And the and the War House and stuff like that, which basically yeah, just decorating an old a house in in authentic authentic ways and getting people to live like that for ages. And and so it went over to America. Yeah, PBS. Yeah, it's the same people, and yeah, PBS kind of sponsored them over to do a few shows like that here too. I yeah. love 1940s House, by the way. The fake air raids oh. are intense. It's <laughs> ridiculous. <laughs> but a little had... bit, but they're putting kids through that. And I was like, wow. <laughs> no. Yeah, you just had to handle the horses. But come, come back another time and tell us about the, the amazing horse riding stories that, that you told us. But thanks, it's been great. Well, um, thanks, everyone, for listening. Ian, what do we normally say? I don't know, man. We, you normally plug something. We never caught up about uh, the Festival of the Spoken Nerd. You have to tell us about it next time, I guess. We'll talk about that next week. Got loads to catch up on. My failure to get a US visa. Loads of stuff to talk about. We'll do that next week. Um, <laughs> we can't, oh, wow. Yeah. Well, thank you for having right me. Yeah. I'm it still was getting over it. <laughs> thanks, thanks for joining us, Jared, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thanks, guys. Go and code creatively. <laughs> yeah, go <laughs> make some stuff. Thanks. Bye. Bye. Bye.